0: Hi, Dirtcast listeners. I'm Madeline Davies, and I am here to introduce or reintroduce a old favorite episode. We're doing a recast this week because we are on a brief hiatus. So coming up is an episode with April Wolf about rape choreography in cinema. Not necessarily a cheery Hollywood topic, but it is very timely considering the conversations we're having around uh, sexual harassment around Hollywood. So please. Listen and learn. Welcome back to an all-new episode of Dirtcast. I am your host, Madeline Davies. I have my good friend, deputy editor of Jezebel, Kate Treese joining me to talk about the dirtiest dirt.
1: Oh, there's a little song now. Thank you for having me yet again. I'm happy to be back.
0: Later in the episode, we have a really fascinating interview with April Wolf, who's the film critic at LA Weekly. Uh, She is here to talk about the idea of rape choreography, which is sort of how stunt coordinators basically choreograph rape on sets, uh, which is something that I hadn't thought about, but is really interesting.
2: If you're an actor in Hollywood for long enough, you will either be raped or uh, be the rapist in some kind of project eventually, and you might have to do it multiple times. But first, Kate, how are you doing?
1: Good. Good.
2: Good, sure. <laughs> I, as
1: I think the most interesting about, thing about my life is that I'm wearing a quite bright shirt. Kate looks
0: festive. I want to go to like a Margaritaville
1: with you. Yeah, when I saw it, I was like, mm, "This is screaming Florida grandmother to me," and I must purchase it. Yeah, pretend tropical. that I'm on vacation, There's even though I'm here. There is a cocktail print. Yeah,
0: um, it's beautiful. Thanks. You look great.
1: Thanks. It's fresh out of the bag, so um, you know, it has that that new clothes feel. Yeah. I'm ready to seize NYC, like Carrie Bradshaw.
0: (laughs) I had maybe one of the strangest days of my life yesterday. Wow. And then also later in the evening, one of our people uh, who works in our social media department, Alex Better, invited me to be on this
1: panel. Oh, right. Maddie did have a huge day, and I didn't even think to ask her about any of it because I'm self-involved. It's okay.
0: (laughs) I mean, you knew I would probably tell you about it anyway because I'm (laughs) self-involved. It was called Night of a Thousand Stassies um and it was so much fun it was at stonewall which i'd never been in before yeah stonewall was great and it was great because i was like talking a lot of shit and then at the end this girl was like hi they are all my best friends and now
1: we're gonna facetime stassi (laughs) what it was like (laughs) she's best friends with the vanderpump rules crew yeah is she also a waitress no huh so um, I thought they only hung out with people that worked at that restaurant.
0: No, they their circle is slightly broader. They hang out with that comedian sometimes. <laughs> sure, <laughs> but it was very exciting. But also, like, did one of you Facetime? Uh she, yeah, Stassi Facetime with the entire room. Wow,
1: haven't you met her before, Stassi? Um, at I that, have a picture taken with Cura? her.
0: Right, but I don't like. She wouldn't remember me. Sure, sure. It was sure. very yeah. much just like I shuffling and not implying that she at all knows who you are. Yeah, you barely know who I am. <laughs> Um, wow, that is a really full day. Yeah, by the time I went to bed, I was just like,
1: I was dead. I was dead on my my dang feet. Can you give us like a little sneak peek as to who you were in a past life? Just say who you're not. I know you were really afraid that you were maybe Hitler. I was not Hitler. Okay, that's satisfactory to me.
0: I will say that like the experience I had and Mm -hmm. I'm not, all I can say was what I experienced. I'm not saying that this was... Not a product of my own imagination, Uh but this is what happened. Uh I was like a colonialist.
1: Oh. So
0: I was not like a good person.
1: As suspected. You had evil. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But it was also cool because I was like a man and I got to like experience male confidence, which ruled.
1: I would love it. (laughs) It was like (laughs) I had no self-doubt whatsoever. I have plenty of confidence, but male confidence really does seem like a whole other world.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There was like a point where the woman who was walking me through this was like, do you have any regrets or doubts? And I was like, no.
1: (laughs) What must that feel like? I can tell you. Great. (laughs) (laughs) The weight of the
0: world not on my shoulders? Please. Yeah, imagine not having doubt about every single thing you do.
1: Mm, I can't. I really can't.
0: Let's talk about the dirtiest dirt of the week. Yeah. Kicking us off. Speaking of confidence, mm-hmm. um, I want to talk to you about J-Lo and her romance with Alex Rodriguez, better known as A-Rod of formerly of the New York Yankees.
1: It seems to me as though they were never not together now.
0: <laughs> like He's just like a mainstay.
1: Like, how was there a world in which J-Lo dated P. Diddy and Ben Affleck, and Casper Smart, and et cetera, et cetera. Right. She was maybe always destined. left out Mark Anthony, which I... I purposely left out (laughs) Mark Anthony. (laughs)
0: The father of her children.
1: Um, (laughs) It seems to me that this was always in the cards. Yeah, and I think it's kind of nice that this, like,
0: girl whose whole thing is, like, Jenny from the block is dating one of the most famous New York Yankees of modern history.
1: Yeah, they seem to have a ton in common, which must be nice. If yeah. you're Jlo J-Lo, who do you have stuff in common with? Almost no Not one. Not Drake. No. <laughs> I think they had some things in common. Yeah, it is, you know yeah. what I mean. A, a, a mutual attractiveness. Yes. Uh, the way all celebrities do. And that must be a nice way to start on with someone. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't care about A-Rod at all. And obviously, J-Lo is like five gazillion times more attractive than him because like who wouldn't be? And right. then also like he's kind of whatever looking
0: but um, he is like he has some very striking features like he's like his like blue eyes are very
1: yeah sparkling. I, i'm not whatever i'm no Faye dunaway i don't know <laughs> but uh i just yes, mean like are. as far as athletes um, go like he's not yeah he's not like one of the athletes that you're I mean, like he's a oh my god player. right and you're he's kind of just like he's very talented which is what gives him his charisma and his attractiveness sure. and he does um, seem to like smart women yeah Because he was dating, oh, my God, the Google lady last. That relationship does not get talked about enough. I was, to put it lightly, obsessed with it. And no one wanted to talk to me about
0: it. (laughs) I was thinking about it a lot because I was like, this says a lot for A-Rod. Yeah. That he, like, is dating this, like, genius. It was
1: really mystifying. I mean, I guess it ended so, like, you know, it wasn't long for this world. And now he's dating J-Lo, which is a real about face. But, yeah, I don't know. I think, like, even just not even— Thinking about their backgrounds. Also, they both have, like, natural abbreviated names. Yeah. How, J-Lo, A-Rod. How could you get anything better than that? I'm not sure.
0: Damn. Did you mm-hmm. see that photograph of them recently leaving some nightclub or something where she's in the dress that has, like, all the illusion
1: panels the cut phoenix out? The phoenix dress, yeah. Yeah. Or, like, they're birds. I don't want to say they're phoenixes. She looks
0: incredible.
1: Yeah. I mean, also, I love that they're both Leos and they're celebrating, like, a Month of their birthdays together, it's like, oh, so you two are just perfect for each other. It's very
0: Stossy Schroeder, yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah, uh, someone was saying, I think in the comments on our website, like, someone was like, oh, JLo always wears the same thing, and then someone else was like, for those of you who are gonna say JLo always wears the same thing, wouldn't you? And it's like, right. yeah, she knows what works for her.
0: I also like desperately want to know who does her work because, mm-hmm, yeah, she like, she is like so smart mm-hmm. with like. Her self maintenance and that nothing obvious, but she just looks better every year.
1: Yeah, and I think also a really key thing about her is she really doesn't drink or do any drugs, and she talks about that. And I believe her that that's why she looks so good. That's like truly the secret. I would look like a fetus if I didn't drink alcohol. Probably, I not if my mother's listening to this that I drink too much. Just saying.
0: No, I've never seen you like get drunk in front of your mom before.
1: Well, that's a story for another day. Yeah.
0: I always have said that if I quit drinking beer I would be like thin as a greyhound. Sure,
1: totally. Um, um but yeah, so I think that so not that not she doesn't have right. <laughs> not that she doesn't have a great team working on her and yeah. she's getting like the blood of virgins put on her face. I'm sure she's up on all that technology. Yeah. But um I really do think she like really takes care of herself. So
0: Oh, I would not argue that. Yeah. You don't like get all of that through Just like having a good cosmetic dermatologist. Right, totally. You get it through like working your ass off. Right, exactly.
1: You know what? I really like being a lazy piece of trash. Yeah, sometimes you just got to make a choice and I'm okay right now with mine. Same.
0: Let's move on. Yeah. I want to talk about what might be the feud of the decade. (laughs) Charlize Theron, Oscar winner, star of several franchises maybe, well-known household name. The year is 2014. The year is 2014. (laughs) She recently slighted another celebrity. Who had slighted her first? Who had slighted her first? Tia Maori, (laughs) which is just (laughs) one half of the Maori twins, the other one being Tamara of Sister Sister. Charlize was rude to Tia at SoulCycle, allegedly. <laughs> and let's somehow, be clear. Somehow this has uh, lasted years. Three. This, two this, and a half. This grudge has yeah. gone on and on. Um, and that Tia first reported it to In Touch. And then Andy Cohen recently asked Charlize about it on Watch What Happens live. And Charlize was did a real, I don't know her, basically. She was, it was pretty masterful. Yeah.
1: She managed to come off not as rude to, like, a person who's significantly less famous than her, but also still technically a celebrity, but also, like, really shut it down pretty quickly. But then also allude to the fact that maybe she is a bitch. It's, like, such a delicate balance, and I'm so impressed with it. She did that...
0: um fake benefit of the doubt thing where she's like she didn't really say that like
1: right and 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 i'm like no i think they quoted her and And she's like like, oh
0: in touch and it's like no they literally quoted her but i think she was trying to like make a dig where it was like there's no way she'd sink that low (laughs) and then it's like knowing very well that she did sink that low right um and then she was able to be like oh she's like i wouldn't have rolled my eyes at her i would have just told her to fuck
1: off yeah which is i think very accurate To what we know about her. Did you roll your eyes? at Tia Mowry. I'm not an eye roller. No. But I would be like, off.
2: Right. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's them hacking back down. You'd be much
1: more straight She's in a ton I'm not an eye roller. Do you remember seeing her at Soul Cycle? I I don't think so. Okay, but I'm sorry if you were there. Right. Okay. Yeah, she's like been on a really good press bender lately. Uh, The thing that we haven't heard is we haven't heard Tia's response to Charlize's response yet. So that is like what I'm really salivating for. Um, and I'm sure it will come. So you know, every day is a new blessing. I wouldn't doubt
0: that Charlize Theron is not a super nice person just based on the fact that she like dated Sean Penn. Yeah. Um, and then. I don't know. I could see her being very, very scary.
1: Yeah. She seems like kind of ruthless, which I'm into. Yeah. Me I don't too. really know anything about her other than that. But I mean, like the the big story about her is that her mom killed her dad in self-defense, which is once you know that, you're like, no, you've been through it. Yeah,
0: she's a she's a fighter for sure. Yeah. She's gonna fight anybody, be it Sean Penn or Tia, Tia Maori. Yeah.
1: So um <laughs> If Tia. Jack A.
0: gets involved, then it's just like, oh, fuck, this is over.
1: <laughs> Tia, I'm just, I'm waiting for your clapback. Please yeah. deliver it soon. I know that the sister-sister reunion is allegedly happening, so you'll have ample time to get in the press. Definitely me. <laughs> <laughs>
0: sort of old news, but I'm not happy about it. So that's why I want to bring it up with you. Yeah. Naomi Watts is
1: supposedly dating Billy Crudup. Yeah. And so I don't they met like this for her. They met on the set of her new show Gypsy, which is this Netflix show where she plays like a crazed therapist.
0: I will not violate the physical boundaries of the patient. And will always do no harm. Created by Sam Taylor Johnson, right? Yeah. Or directed by. Directed by, yeah.
1: I think for all intents and purposes, um, her ex-husband seems... Her ex-partner. Her ex-partner, excuse me. They've got a modern A very modern, thoroughly modern relationship. Uh, seems really chill and nice. And we're talking about Leave Schreiber. Yes, sorry. So it is a real twist to see her go from that to... Billy Crudup, who is best known for leaving his pregnant partner to date Claire Danes, who was, like, significantly younger than him and her. Yeah.
0: Mary and Louise then, Parker is the partner.
1: Right. And then, which actually spurred some beautiful poetry on Mary <laughs> Louise Parker's part. So maybe, like, all pain has an outlet. I don't know.
0: Yeah. Um, also, like, I loved um, after that all happened, Mary Louise Parker won an award for weeds. Mm-hmm. And she uh, thanked her. Her newborn son, who she actually named after Billy Crudup, she named him William.
1: Oh, yeah. um,
0: Which I thought was interesting. Yeah. But then she just uh, thanked him for uh, making her boobs look so good in her
1: dress. Yeah, that was an incredible acceptance speech line.
2: Um, And Janelle Maloney just told me she would pay me $1,000 if I thanked my newborn son for my boobs looking so good in this dress.
3: (laughs) So... William Atticus Parker, thank you so much, from your mother. Thank you. Thank you very
1: much. Such a hard thing to do. We're so critical of them because it's so easy to be, but to make them funny in the right time and have them go over well and you're so probably overwhelmed, that was like a real primo. I'm very impressed with that.
0: It's like don't plan enough and you— Look like an idiot. Plan too much and you look
1: full of hormones and you you just run with gold. (laughs) Um, that's like the big story about him, right? There I feel like there's another one about him. Um I don't know. He is very handsome.
0: Yeah, I think his like his peak was like almost famous. He looked so good in that.
1: Uh I really like him in the movie he met Claire Danes. Um, I think that movie's kind of underrated. Mm, I don't think I've seen it. It's been a really long time. He plays um an actor. In like Shakespearean times, is that right? No, probably more recently. Olden than days. That. Yeah, olden days, e olden time. Um, who, because only men were allowed to act, uh, plays a woman and she, Claire Danes plays like an aspiring actress who wants to be able to play women. And so there's a lot of like kind of discussion of gender and fluidity and sexuality, which is kind of exciting and interesting. Kate, you're thinking of Shakespeare and love. They are very
0: similar. <laughs> <laughs> um and to Billy Crudup's credit, it's
1: like a, a tongue twister. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, the thing with Mary Louise Parker was like over a decade ago.
1: Oh, long, but uh, gossips have long memories. Yeah. <laughs> so hopefully he's evolved past that. Yeah. And
0: I hope he's making Naomi very happy just because I like her a lot.
1: Yeah. I don't know. It does seem like a little bit like a rebound to me. It's like you got divorced and then you start dating someone that's working on a the co-star. same. Yeah. It's just like, oh, God. But again, What? Do I know nothing? Plus, like, isn't Leave dating
0: someone who looks just like her? Oh, is he? I don't know. I think so.
1: Um, The paparazzi photos, we belong to this one um, uh, photo subscription service, and the captions of Leave are always like, sexy daddy, or like, dad bod, or like, they're always just like, leave again. (laughs) Leave again. (laughs) They always are like, really excited about him being out on the town but he's always he just like walks around everywhere like he's always out with his kids so it's not really that exciting
0: it always throws me off that his brother is pablo shriver
1: oh wow stash on orange is the new black i did not know that
0: yeah weird right (laughs) yeah try to wrap your brain around
1: it Are they seen in public often together? Are they friends? Are they close? Now I have questions. I don't know about all that. I'll Google it after this and report back. Yes, please. Never, because I'll never be invited
0: back on the show. No, yeah, you're done after this. (laughs) Um, Can we talk just a little
1: bit about The Bachelorette? Yeah, we can. I'm sorry, guys, if you're bored of this, but the season's almost over, so. Yeah, you have so little time left. Yeah.
0: I want to say, so in this most recent episode, they go to see Rachel, the Bachelorette's
1: family. Yes.
0: I just want to say that I loved them. Yeah, they're great. They got, like, the right read on
1: everybody. Yeah, her sister did the, like, you know, bad cop thing. Mm -hmm. My gut is telling me Brian's a charmer. He's direct and he's open, but I don't think there's the sincerity factor in it. And so my guard was up. I don't know. If you're married and you have a kid and you have another one on the way and this guy is coming in and, like, trying to infiltrate your fam i would be like really protective like i'm gonna have to spend every christmas with this bozo right you met him on a reality show like oh get away (laughs) my sister's like a smart beautiful talented lawyer yeah yeah i would be highly skeptical
0: well and so like the final three are eric who is a personal trainer from los angeles yeah uh brian who's a chiropractor from (laughs) miami my Um, thoughts about
1: this have been made known and then
0: my hometown sweetheart. Peter. Peter. Beautiful also a personal trainer, but a business owner.
1: Yeah. Uh, I started Madison, following Wisconsin. Peter on Instagram per your suggestion. And I'm not a big domesticated animals person. Those who are close to me know. He's very cute with his dog. Very. And seems, his like, she and, seems his niece really, and nephew. Yeah. Seems like he is doing a really good job seeming like a good guy, <laughs> Yeah, hard to do. <laughs> Um, well, I don't know. I don't think it's actually that hard to do, but a lot of guys who go on the show are not good at it, so no. maybe that's what's up.
0: Well, I think I said this to you where I was like, ooh, he's got that Wisconsin, Midwestern parent-pleasing charm down pat. Yeah. And I think he even said, he was like, I don't think I'm going to be ready to propose to Rachel at the end of this. And her mom was like, I'm happy to hear that. Yeah. Like, you seem sensible. Yeah,
1: because her mom was like, what are you doing? I think yeah. a little bit, which who wouldn't be?
0: Well, plus, like... um Brian, the Miami chiropractor, who's very showy and very over-the-top and, I'm going to say, phony. Yeah. I mean, they all are a little bit phony, but he just is so blatantly phony.
3: I was very excited to introduce Brian to my family, but I felt like my excitement wasn't reciprocated by my family. You know, all these questions are being
0: fired at Brian. I'm frustrated. I'm irritated at this point. You know, Brian is fine, but I am frustrated because the energy is
2: totally different than it was the other two days with Peter and Eric.
1: I'm like really low-key annoyed,
0: but I'm not even gonna go into that. But you know your family.
2: It's not that though.
0: He answered that that should have been it. That's your opinion. We need to get to a comfort level. You have to understand you are in a bubble. We are outside that bubble. And so the way we see things, we have to get clarity. What more did you need to know?
1: I think that Rachel has a case of dick blindness.
3: Mm. Like, she just wants... excellent
1: diagnosis. (laughs) Like, she just wants to fuck him. Uh, This most recent episode ended, and we just saw Eric's overnight date, and then we haven't seen the second half of Peter's, and we haven't seen Brian's. So, like, we'll see what happens. So, she is close, at least in our viewing of it, to, like, getting the opportunity to do that. Right. I just think,
0: like, if you are really overwhelmed by feelings for someone in that short of a time and in that closed of a situation, it's like... How, like, super Christian kids oftentimes get married at, like, 18 yeah. because it's, like, the only way that they can... Have sex. Ugh. Yeah. I feel like that's, like, the case there where it's just, like, that's what that attraction is, right? Where it's just, like, oh, I gotta
1: get on that. <laughs> this episode was really, I think, for the first time, and so much of this is, like, editing, so who knows, but really made it seem as though Rachel is like, pretty thirsty to get married. And her, so her reaction to all the men was kind of interesting because... She was, seems the most effusive about Brian, who is the most, in her eyes, marriable. Like, he's the one that's like, I would marry you right now. Yeah. And Eric is like, I love you. I want to get married. But he's, like, kind of young and doesn't know what he's doing. And Peter's like, let's date seriously. And she clearly is like, I just want something, like, for sure. Yeah. Which is kind of interesting to me. And I sort of wonder if part of it is, like, she's 33, not old, just to be clear. But, like, I don't know. She's from the South. Clearly, this is, like, a pressure she's put on herself or feels from other people right. to, like, lock something down and get that part of her life started while she's been successful in another part. So I wonder if, like, that's sort of influencing a lot of this. Yeah. She is also is, like, pretty religious, as we've seen. So, like, I'm sure that's part of it as well. I do love her dog, too. Copper. Yeah, just let
0: Copper be the star of the show.
1: Mm, I think that would be pretty boring. But.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you think it's boring anyway, though.
1: Yeah, it sort of depends on the app, but yeah. Sure.
0: <laughs> um, well, Kate, I won't bore you with The Bachelorette any longer. <laughs> um, but thank you for joining me for this
1: segment. Oh, thank you for having me.
0: So today I'm very happy to have the lead film critic from L.A. Weekly, April Wolfe, in the studio, sort of. She's in L.A.
2: Hi, April. Hi there. Thanks for having me.
0: Of course. (laughs) And so you recently wrote a really great in-depth piece sort of about cinema and its relationship to sexual assault on screen. The article was called Rape Choreography Makes Films Safer But Still Takes Its Toll on the Cast and Crew. And I really suggest everybody read it. After this or before, you know, you can hit pause, whatever. (laughs) So jumping off, I really just kind of want to discuss with you the history of rape on screen, particularly in regards to male actors, sort of, I don't know. It seems like there is this really bleak history of directors, these auteurs, who Mm -hmm. are actually kind of blatantly abusive to their female actresses.
2: I mean, rape has been on film since film has begun that has is not something new right um you know and especially you know like the westerns and things but the way that that was portrayed was just kind of like sweeping you know romance and and you know a hero saves them and it's it's never too too bleak but the 1970s you know everyone talks about that that auteur generation of the 1970s you know they just kind of jerk off about it oh yeah these guys are so great but the thing is that you know they actually kind of reinvented rape cinema in that decade Mm -hmm. in a way that I've never quite been uh, comfortable with. And the way that they did it, you know, every all these actors were doing, um, you know, and the directors, too, they were really, really into method. You know, suddenly they had to, like, become these characters. So you get all these actors who, like, you know, who become very macho. And, you know, the people who are method are are never, like, the weak ones is what I would see. It's always, like, the the ones who want to be macho and kind of enact these things right. out. So you have these actors who, you know— and directors who are feeding into this kind of frenzy of just, like, torture. And they bring women into it in these storylines. And inevitably, you know, I looked at, like, all of the best movies that we cite from the 1970s, and they all have rape in them. Not all, but there's so many, so, so many that have, like, a pivotal rape scene in them. And it it was just getting depressing thinking about it. I mean, and one you cite is the one from...
0: Last Tango in Paris, which has sort of come up again recently just because uh, Bernardo Bertolucci, the director who's very famous and very well regarded, spoke Mm -hmm. about his actress in the film, uh, Maria Schneider, who has since said that like the rape scene in that film left her feeling like she had literally been raped because there was sort of some surprise elements that Bertolucci and Brando conspired together to create to, like, make her feel more surprised. And,
2: yeah, and that's not the only example. Yeah, I'm sure that your your listeners specifically are going to know, like, some of that story about, about, you know, him kind of lubricating her her anus with butter without her knowledge that that was going to happen. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> God, it's just like uh, it's, that was so Marlon crude, Brando. But it's so so yeah.
0: true. I know.
2: It's so gross. But— you know, that one, I think that story had been around for a while. And the thing that always got me was that no one talked about it. You know, like right. I had I had heard about this and I was just like kind of shouting into into the void, you know, like this is not okay. And people just like, whatever. And those right. these stories it's
0: abound. <laughs> on that. Oh. I mean, it's even thinking about I mean, this is not a rape scene, but I was thinking about in regards to sort of this really weird power dynamic that directors have with their actresses where even with mm. The Shining, just, you know, what Kubrick put Shelley Duvall through mm-hmm. is abusive and very insane. And, you know, it's sort of, um, you know, just like keeping her too cold or not letting her know uh, when things were happening or making her do the same scene again and again and again until she kind of went nuts. And it's just, yeah, these are the people who we admire for their creations. And it's, it's just such a screwed up power dynamic.
2: It is. And I think that one of the things that I that I point out in the article that really offends me, like as a person who used to act and who still directs films, is that these directors, they never trust the women to act. They think right. that they have to put them through hell, whereas acting is actually just, it's pretending. You know, if you right. hear like Jodie Foster talk about acting, it's just like, you just pretend And then you're that person, and then you're not that person. But these guys, you know, they thought that they had to torture these women. Like, they they really thought that they were kind of talentless in a way. That's that's how I was reading it. You know, like, the only way that they could get any kind of performance from them that they liked was by torturing them. It's so condescending. In the original draft of this article, I talked pretty uh, at length about Straw Dogs, too, because that story really... Oh, there's so many elements to it that, that aren't included in the article. But um, the actress in that film, Susan George, you know, she wanted to break into Hollywood. She'd been doing British films for a while. And so uh, working with Sam Peckinpah, who had come over from America to shoot in Britain with Dustin Hoffman, that was her big break. I knew
3: now how badly I wanted this thing, how badly I wanted this role. It becomes as it does for every artist. At this point, it becomes a matter of life and death. Of course it's not, but it feels that way, you know? It was so important. But the
2: thing is, Straw Dogs has, like, this infamous double rape scene, and it's, it's so harsh because you're... She's getting raped once by a man that she used to date, and then another time it's basically like a gangbang. of like, <laughs> Jesus. This, like, this guy invites other people to rape her. And it and um, the way that Sam, Sam Peckinpah films it is that you don't know if she likes the rape or not. And so that that's a, a huge problem anyway of just what you're seeing on screen. But behind the scenes was fucked up. Like, he would not talk to Susan about the choreography. He refused to say anything about what was going to happen. She didn't know that's anything. So she was going to go in blind. She was just going to be, like, naked. Nobody knew. And then, the, like, the one time that she was able to, like, nail down an appointment to, like, really talk to him, she went into his office, and in his office, he's talking, um, Sam Peckinpah is uh, nude uh, from the (gasps) waist down, and so is Dustin Hoffman, and so is the producer of the film. And these three men are, are half naked, their wings hanging out, arguing, standing up and arguing. And Susan, that was Susan George's only time to talk to him about this rape scene. And so she just like, she almost walked off the picture after that.
3: I was obviously frightened. Yes, I'd committed to do this film. I'd seen the, I'd read the script through and through and through. I'd gone to all these auditions. I knew what was required in terms of a rape scene. But that's really all it said. It, it didn't it never went into the specifics on paper so I needed to know what was required of me as anybody would and they were not prepared he was not prepared to give me that and it did come to blows and I did walk out and I did say if he wasn't prepared to tell me what I was going to shoot he actually um, he gave me some rough notion on that day and the rough notion was extremely rough and I didn't like what I heard at all and I wouldn't have been prepared to do what he asked me to do so I said on the basis of what you've just asked find yourself another Amy and I walked
2: out. And he, like, Peck and Paul was saying all these Nazi slurs to Hoffman to rile him up as well, you know, this whole method thing that they were doing. But right. to, to Susan, he was just, um, he would give her the cold shoulder. He wouldn't talk to her. And he wouldn't allow anyone on the cast to talk to her. He wouldn't allow, Dustin Hoffman was so method that he kind of like was angry and yelled at her and gave her the silent treatment the whole time on set, <laughs> even after the rape scene was filmed. Can you imagine that? You put yourself in this position of getting raped and having to film it for, like, how many hours, and then your co-star is still in character and refuses to talk to you.
3: And I would just shut down and say, even at 21 years of age, I mean, don't push me. I have what you want. I have these emotions inside me. I can deliver everything you want me to deliver. But you don't need to squeeze it out of me. And you certainly don't need to come and put a knife in my stomach to make me bleed. I will bleed for you of my own accord because I'm an actress. And I will bleed. But you will not make me bleed by hurting me.
0: And you don't even have the support of the crew. Like, there's yeah. no there's no comfort or thought to, like, your emotional well-being or safety. Yeah. Which... I mean, like a couple words that come up a lot in your piece when people are talking about this is they were traumatized by these scenes or, you know, this left them really shaken. And it's just so strange to me that that's a thing that people have been proud of for so long and that it continues today and that you cite, you know, even Paul Haggis in Crash, which is not that Mm -hmm. long ago, had Danny Newton surprised with like a, a, a hand rape, as he called it. It's still as pressing of an issue now, especially as rape scenes become seemingly more ubiquitous.
2: I only talk about mostly um, SAG pictures or union-affiliated pictures in this article for, you know, present tense. And that's where um, the actors have rights and they are protected. And that's a whole other thing than what's happening with some of this low-budget filmmaking that is non-union. Um, right. Because, you know, technology has made it really great for so many people to make web series, to make shorts, to make of features, you know, on this low budget. But the thing is that these filmmakers, they they haven't been reared in proper filmmaking, you know, and that's where you get something um, like the uh, the camera DP who was um, killed on these train tracks um, oh, at right, Sarah. Yeah. 27-year-old Sarah Jones was doing her job, part of the Midnight Rider crew, instructed to place their equipment and a metal bed on these railroad tracks, only to see a train coming towards them at 57 miles per hour and smashing into the bed. The train hit the bed, it sent shrapnel flying everywhere, and she was hit. And, you know, like these people who don't understand safety, they don't understand um, their actors and that their actors are humans, specifically the women. They just kind of see them as like these, these people that they put in situations that they want, and they just torture them. But, you know— We need to have a conversation with all of these people about what it is to be a filmmaker and what kind of responsibility you have towards the people on your crew and your cast.
0: So one thing that you discuss at length in your piece is that there are now rape choreographers on set whose Mm -hmm. job is to make things uh, explicitly clear you know, and to coordinate with actors, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that role.
2: I mean, it's a it's a burgeoning career. Uh, <laughs> um, this this woman that I know um, through one of my networks, Devin McNair, I interviewed her for this because I thought the her life right now is very fascinating. Um, she is a stunt double, a stunt choreographer, and she's also a pro wrestler. She's a really kind of badass lady. Um, her character yeah, name she is sounds Fire. Incredible. <laughs> I don't know her, but I love her. <laughs> <laughs> she um, fell into this role, I think, like about a year and a half ago of rape choreography because one of her mentors, um, who was a, a stunt choreographer, he found that he had like only exclusively been getting rape scenes to choreograph. Like that was all the work that he was getting and it was getting him down. And so he started referring all these things to um, Devon. And so she started taking over and because she's one of very few female stunt choreographers, she has become in a very short amount of time the premier stunt choreographer who keeps all of these actresses safe and, wow. you know, allows it to be realistic but keeps it safe and and um and doesn't let directors play mind games on set.
0: You refer to her as a reluctant expert. So yeah. it's sort of it's not what she would necessarily prefer to be doing, but because opportunities for female stunt coordinators are so limited. This is sort of what she's left with.
2: Also, as a stunt double, one of the things I mentioned is that there's um, a thing with Hollywood where they keep casting male stunt doubles for women. So even if women get in a great stunt movie, there will not be a female stunt double for them. Um, So she's, you know, she's just left to be this person who choreographs rapes, which is just she's too talented to solely do that, though I'm glad she's there on set for them. There's a very
0: famous photograph. I think it's of Jennifer Lopez in a movie, and it's she's standing next to her male stunt double who's dressed exactly like her but is several inches taller, and it's just yeah. very much points out just how ridiculous that is. Because again, there are women who can do the job. Yeah, and they're
2: really good. They're trained for this. I I I just don't understand this industry sometimes. I just don't get it. It is uh. a
0: mystery. Do you have thoughts on how uh, studios and film sets
2: can make these scenes safer for the performers involved? Well, I think you should have more female directors. Not to say that male directors don't have a safe set. It's just that I think that they think about things from a different perspective um, or Mm -hmm. have a different perspective. So even if there's a female producer or female director or just any woman on the crew who may have some experience with this, it does make things safer because then they speak up and they say, I don't think we should maybe be doing 10 to 15 takes of this rape scene when you got it in the first two. You know, um, one of the things that all the female directors who filmed rape scenes told me is just like, you do not do more than like two to three takes. It's just too much. You know, think about the actors and the people who make these scenes. And I, I think it will make you watch movies differently if you picture them in a very vulnerable position, giving up a lot of their kind of time and emotional life and well-being for this. I think that when people picture humans actually doing these things, maybe we'll actually get fewer, but but better rape scenes. Is is my hope.
0: Well, you have a quote from uh, the director of Into the Forest, which is a Canadian film starring Evan Rachel Wood and uh, Ellen Page, mm-hmm. where Evan Rachel Wood's character uh, gets sexually assaulted. And the director, Patricia Razuma, she says that she was like she got the crew. It was a skeleton crew so that Evan Rachel Wood wouldn't feel too exposed. She mm-hmm. was like, we're going to do this in two takes. That's it. We're not going to draw this out and make this any more painful for you. And Evan Rachel Wood worked so much with uh, Michael Eklund, who was the male actor who was she was interacting with. Just mm-hmm. to make it a safe experience for both of them, because it's traumatizing for men, too, to have to reenact these rape scenes where they're the perpetrator.
2: I think I I can't believe that we haven't thought of this before. But, yeah, it is, right.
0: you know? yeah like no one wants to do that, except for like the few people who do, in which case they shouldn't be working anywhere.
2: Yeah, yeah. I get so bummed out. I'm I'm a heterosexual woman who is in a great relationship with a loving man who, <laughs> you know, and I look at him and I look at the way that we just kind of like assume the worst of men right now, even right. men assuming the worst of men. It just, it kind of drives me nuts. I There are sure. men out there that are terrible, but most of these dudes do not want to play this rapist. This is not in their you know gene this is not something that they're that they're very comfortable with at all and they you know they're sensitive people who went into the craft of acting you know like right. this is it's not it's not easy for them they're they're also traumatized
0: in a way we're all victims of this very fucked up social dynamic that pop culture for some reason insists on perpetrating Yeah, I do want to read one quote from Devin McNair, which I found really insightful and sensitive, which was uh, these actresses are playing a vulnerable part and they're half naked. So I'm assisting for safety reasons. If the production didn't have a choreographer, I would not trust it, which, yes, like you talking about the um, straw dogs thing where it's just any Mm -hmm. time where you're walking into something blind like that is not a good director no matter what their final product is like they are not doing their job
2: no and you know i think everyone everyone has this idea of the auteur i we really need to get away from this auteur idea i think right. it's I, it's so it's so destructive it's um it's so damning because you know it's just it's like these lone madmen who are or geniuses and that's just not how a film set actually works it's you right. know 50 to 150 people on crew who make this whole thing. It's not just this one director. And, you know, giving that one person too much power, I think, is it's asking for disaster and asking for abuse.
0: Yeah, and one thing uh, Rosima told you was, uh, to quote her, it's preparation, it's choreography, so everyone knows exactly what everyone is doing. I just let Wood lead. That, to me, is, like, actual talent. If you're a director who can clue your actors in on what they need to do and have them deliver. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what real talent as a director is. It's not, you know, turning it into a surprise documentary without someone knowing.
2: Now, for any listeners, I really have to suggest that people watch Into the Forest. As a film, as like a sister film, it's really yeah. beautiful, but I I think that that rape scene in particular is the, it's at the the top of my list of how they should be pr- uh, portrayed. It's almost abstract you go directly into Evan Rachel Wood's consciousness, her character's right. consciousness. There's some interesting things with the camera that Patricia does to, to try to uh, evoke certain, you know, anxious feelings with us. But it's not it's explicit. Fortuitous. Yeah, yeah. I, it's also on Amazon Prime right now, so it's free if you have yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And you know, um, uh, Patricia actually, when that the when the article came out, she um, she and Evan Rachel Wood had sent me um, a picture. Of Evan directly after filming, and I wish that this were visual so I could share it with you. But it's um, it's a close up of her eyes that Evan took, I think, in her trailer of herself, mm-hmm. and her eyes are just—they're almost completely red because all the blood vessels have been popped around Jesus her Christ. eyes because she was crying so hard. Oh my God! And this is yeah. a good film set. This is this is one right. where everyone felt supported. You know.
0: I also cried through that entire movie, so it's very, you know, and I didn't even have to go through it. I know.
2: Um, but, oh. And, you know, I, 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 feel for, I feel for Evan Rachel Wood. I feel for um, Tandy Newton because these are also actresses who are getting raped in multiple projects. One of the things right. that I, I found out is that if you're an actor in Hollywood for long enough, you will either be raped or uh, be the rapist. And some kind of project eventually, and you might have to do it multiple times. And those two in particular have to do it multiple times.
0: I mean, and I think one thing that's very interesting and also kind of misinterpreted about feminist film criticism is that I don't think either of us would say that we're against rape being depicted on film, period, and that there are times where it seems necessary or where it actually adds to the storytelling and isn't just a catalyst for a dude to do something heroic. You know, yeah. there are times where it's done well and Into the Forest is an example of that. But it's just you have to be so careful because it's such a fragile subject.
2: It is. And, you know, I I really think that it requires a kind of character study uh, angle of your film. If you don't have mm-hmm. that in your film and it's just kind of an action-y thing, it just it doesn't work for me. It doesn't. And and I'm not talking about like a character study of a man because wh- whose who's like wife or girlfriend is raped because I'm Right, I'm like pretty, a cowboy I'm who's out that. to... <laughs> Yeah, right. But, you know, one of the things that I keep saying is just, uh, you know, most of these rape scenes, most of them that I've come across, they are written and directed by men. And they are mostly, I'm going to say 99.9 percent, women getting raped. But the thing is, if you look at statistics, men also get raped at astonishingly high numbers. And no one's talking about that. That is totally fair game for these men to write and to explore from their own point of view and their own perspective to see what that is. And I highly encourage it, but, you know, lay off just a little. (laughs)
3: Just lay off a little
0: bit. This is a dichotomy that you bring up, which is sort of, are you portraying rape as sex or are you portraying rape as violence? Which is, (laughs) I think, kind of where it's much harder to... It's much harder to, like, sexualize male rape, right? It's like, you know, there's not going to be people watching this and feeling like it feels like a sex scene for the most part. Whereas I think with women, directors tend to make it weirdly sexual.
2: I don't know if you watch The Outlander, but there's a really fascinating episode of The Outlander where there is a male rape scene. Um, Mm. And... Anna Forrester, who I also interviewed and I wasn't able to include in this um, story. I talked to her about how she recreated that. And, you know, she she focuses so much on these the, the men's faces. And everything is so, so choreographed with that. But there were people who kind of, in the same respect, kind of saw it as like a little bit sexy. And sometimes it, mm-hmm. that's almost unavoidable. There are people who want to fetishize anything. Which sure. it's just human nature is terrible. Just people are terrible. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that is true. I feel like that's my takeaway from almost anything I approach. Like, oh, we're nightmares.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Just start <laughs> from start from that angle and go from there.
0: <laughs> Definitely. I mean, so there's actually this really interesting behind the scene clip from the movie Monster, directed by Patty Jenkins. And it's taken right after Charlize Theron films a really violent rape scene. And watching those two interact after this really intense moment was strangely heartening in that Charlize Theron was uh, hysterically sobbing and it was genuine. This wasn't uh, as Eileen Warnos or anything. And Patty Jenkins was just embracing her and like giving her the comfort she needed and the time she needed to recover. Mm -hmm. And I just have never seen anything like that. I'm not saying that it doesn't exist from a male director just like she gave it the seriousness and gravity that it needed.
2: I don't want to make any blanketing statements, but I do think that a lot of male directors, they don't, um they they just can't fathom it. You know, it's, right. it's just not in their paradigm. And sometimes sure. I don't blame them for that because they really, they don't, they have no idea what women have to deal with on a daily basis and how they're able to process that. I think that they're more afraid often on set. Like men on set... Um, of a rape scene. I I do talk a little bit about that in the article, you know, Mm -hmm. like editors who have to watch the footage and there's a really great anecdote about Jodie Foster uh, filming The Accused, which again is another infamous rape scene and how, you know, she would be cracking jokes looking at the dailies after filming these rape scenes, you know, kind of bounce back. But the men around her were, um, they all lost like 10 pounds each. They were insomniacs. They, they, couldn't really deal with it you know these they they just weren't they weren't able to offer any kind of solace to anyone because i think they were just in total shock they didn't they didn't understand
0: that makes sense too (laughs) i mean i get that (laughs) we can say that we're not just monsters we're complex monsters
2: we're complex monsters and we you know we're when we're faced with something that we've never understood before i think that we don't often react the correct way
0: I want to um, close out with a quote from the director, Rachel Feldman, who you interview for your piece. Mm-hmm. Um, and she says, I once had to tell a writer that when people in a story have conflict, they can argue about it. It doesn't have to succumb to violence. Raven violence is often just dumb, easy writing. Which, you know, is kind of, I think, the question that everybody should ask themselves when directing or writing a screenplay, which is this is this just dumb and easy Mm-hmm. Or does it actually matter?
2: I mean, I can't tell you how many, how many movies I've seen, how many scripts I've read where the character's reaction, generally male, is instead of talking, instead of having like a really pithy line of dialogue or something that's really interesting that reveals character, they just hit or they, write, or you know, like that's it. so. It is dumb, easy writing, and it is meant to kind of sell sex. So, like, they these are these a lot of these writers are people who don't understand the difference between rape and sex yet. There is not mm-hmm. like a conversation that they that they understand. And if you've worked in Hollywood, like I have, it's it's really disheartening because you come into contact with a lot of people who, for instance, don't read Jezebel. Uh, they <laughs> they've never even thought about feminism like they they like their their wives and their girlfriends all right but they are the antithesis of feminism and these are the people who are you know writing and okaying and greenlighting these rape scenes so they're like yeah that's great it's great writing they'll sell people love rape they love sex same thing you know
0: um i had a friend who was writing a horror movie and at one point he was like yeah and then i don't know she might just get raped and I was like, how about we talk about this a little bit? And then he reconsidered it in a way that it was good. It was like it was good conversation. But mm-hmm. just sort of the flippant way that he was just like going to add this in just to like make it more gratuitous was really uh, revealing.
2: Yeah. There's I mean, I've I've been talking about rape and film for, you know, pretty steadily online for, you know, like the past five years or something since I started just getting obsessed with how we portray it. And ever since then, I've, I've always had young writers, mostly male who, no, all male, I have to say, they were all men, who asked me, oh, hey, would you mind reading this script of mine? Because I want to make sure that the, the rape is good. And then I have to like sit there and think like, why, why do you have to like put a rape in it? That's usually my first right. question is like, does it, is it necessary? And then we have to go from there, but it's, it's such a long dialogue Um, And someone has to be the person to ask them that. Why? Why do you need it?
0: Yeah, and you're doing it, which is great. Although it's a heavy burden, I have to say.
2: Right? Yeah, every time. Watch my rape scene. Tell me if it's good. Oh, God.
0: (laughs) Uh, April, thank you so much for joining us. I think this was super enlightening. And I really encourage everybody to read your work on LA Weekly and elsewhere.
2: Oh, thank you so much. It was great talking about this. (laughs)
0: Thank you so much for listening to DirtCast. Our show is produced by Levi Sharp with editorial oversight by Kate Dries. Modena Mofidi is our executive director of audio. Our theme music is by Stuart Wood. This episode was mixed by Jamie Colazzo. Want to send us a tip or let us know what you think? Hit us up at DirtCast at jezebel.com. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts.